Hey everybody, it's Eric with IndieWire, and this week's episode is brought to you by Vimeo. Now, if you go to vimeo.com slash IndieWire, you can actually see a whole bunch of movies, most of which were released this year, that I personally like very much, and I hope you'll check all of them out. But the one that I want to single out this week is actually a movie that was released a couple of years ago. It's called The Act of Killing. It's directed by Josh Oppenheimer, and it's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. It's frankly unprecedented in terms of the way in which it depicts the uh, residual trauma of the Indonesian genocide through the memories and reenactments of the people who actually committed these crimes. There's a movie out in theaters now called The Look of Silence, which is the follow-up to that movie, also from Josh Oppenheimer and also involving the Indonesian genocide. It's also fantastic, but I really think you should see the act of killing first for the sake of context. And if you use the promo code ERIC10, you can get a 10% discount when you rent it on Vimeo. You can also watch the director's cut, which is longer, more sophisticated in certain ways. It's the way in which Josh Oppenheimer really puts in context this very ambitious and profound project that he's accomplished. So I hope you'll check it out because it really does a phenomenal job of setting the stage for the look of silence, which is in theaters now. And they they really speak to each other in fascinating ways. So go use that promo code ERIC10. Watch those other movies at vimeo.com slash IndieWire too because I promise you they're really good. And let me know what you think. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson on Hollywood, though last week I wasn't around because I took a little vacation and took on the hosting duties with our new managing editor, Kate Erblin, so I hope folks had a chance to meet Kate through that opportunity. It, it sounded pretty good on my end. How did it go for you, Anne? Oh, it was fun. It was really fun. Um, and she she and I got into Comic-Con, and she's someone who's been there and understands it and, and gets that world, so it was fun to to uh, to shoot it, shoot the breeze with her on that. Are you glad to have Comic-Con finally behind you? You know, what's weird about it is that because it's so intense while you're there, I'm still sneaking stories out. I did something on Crimson Peak yesterday, you know. So uh, I did Tarantino. I caught up with that, you know, The the Hateful Eight. Uh, There's still more content coming from Comic-Con. I'll just parse it out as I go. As much as that marketing machine doesn't really appeal to me, I am somewhat curious about the experience to the extent that I feel like maybe one day I need to be there. A.O. Scott's coverage this year in the New York Times was actually really intriguing in the way that he spoke about the diversity of Comic-Con in relation to the diversity at, say, certain film festivals. I it's a it totally a, different world. It's a totally... And, it, and it's huge. It's on a scale that you can barely uh, comprehend. You know, it's like it's like going to the Democratic National Convention or something. It's on that kind of scale. I guess to me that's sort of what can represents for people who are you know, cinephiles of, of certain sorts or, or people who have that kind of sensibility about a particular way of appreciating one art form and comic-con seems to represent that for different people and that's a but it's not just film i mean that's the point that a.o scott was making i think it's 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 a larger cultural um um footprint that that crosses uh, so many different 
genres. It's it's just not um, you know film is just a, a small portion of it. Well, I, I'm excited for the Toronto lineup next week in part because of the new TV section, and, and I am wondering how film festivals are going to have to evolve to sort of meet that mandate. Well, it was really fun talking to Cameron Bailey about it when he was in town, and I know you, you did in New York, because what happens is that everybody was talking about TV. You know, everyone was talking about TV, and they just saw an opportunity to serve their audience on the one hand, but also to serve the industry, because I just think it's exciting to see, you know, what if we could see the, the, Les Revenants ahead of time, you know, before anybody in America had gotten and hold of it. Well, I personally don't feel really threatened by TV so much as content to welcome one other kind of medium to the table because for me, cinema is something that can overlap with TV, but it's still sort of different. I mean, a lot of the movies that I personally get excited about, as you know, might be deemed more eccentric by certain commercial standards and you couldn't do or them. Or idiosyncratic. Shows, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps a touch. But I take that as a compliment and I would say that cinematic ideas aren't necessarily televisual and if we can explore both of those things in equal measures then we're having a more complex cultural conversation than we yeah. would if we ghettoize them so. yeah but if you take the nick or you take uh the first season of true detective less so in the second season if you take the budgets that are involved with game of thrones if you take the complexity of the storytelling with the writing on some of these top tier shows you 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 are actually in the realm of anything that's being done in cinema, uh, I would argue. And and what's interesting, you're you're more drawn to the European sensibility to uh, the auteurs that can shape, and so am I. Many times, I'm not I'm not immune. But but um, the big budget cinema that has become so uh, barren and devoid of originality that those very people who used to do the middle range movies are the ones who are now working in TV. It is a wholesale 100% migration that has occurred. And if, if, you know, if the head of HBO and Warner brothers doesn't think there's a distinction to be made between money that he makes at Warner's and money that he makes at HBO, so be it. But there is a real loss for what we consider two-hour filmmaking, that loss is real and scary and permanent, I think. Except that these movies are still happening. They're just happening in places that you have to kind of work to find. I mean, Small. Small. small the festival circuit is look a at like, showcase for it. Yeah, well, look at The Revenant. The Revenant is a classic case of an independent filmmaker, an art filmmaker who has moved from Fox Searchlight, where we knew what he was doing and at what level of budget, to Big Fox, and lo and behold, I'm going to go shoot in the northern wastes. I'm going to make my crew and my cast suffer reality. I'm going to send Emmanuel Lubezki out for two hours a day to catch the natural light. I'm going to make the most beautiful, you know, Terrence Malick movie. You know? Well, the amazing thing about that is that Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuritu just made a movie about the vanity of, of artistic impulses. Tell me about it. it. 
He's living it. And yeah, he is living it. And he knew he knew he was telling his own story with Birdman more than anyone, you know, would have liked to admit. And the stories that came off that set were that he was extremely difficult to work for and incredibly demanding. And he would lose his temper and all that stuff. And they were under incredible duress and making those long shots work and everything. But... <laughs> they were on a, a, a t- they were living in a temperate climate. <laughs> I mean, these people are like being dragged naked across, you know, the ice, you know, <laughs> and all the stories are coming back and the reporters, uh, you know, Kim Masters and, and Chris Connolly, uh, my old colleagues at Premier, they are, in fact, you know, reporting them and it's way over budget and it's, you know, whatever. I, I'm, I'm amused. It's incredibly entertaining and also so, I mean, I think something you could have predicted from a long time ago. I agree. I, I mean, totally agree. It's also the post-Oscar. Yeah. It always happens. And also, I saw a, an interesting posting on Facebook by the indie producer, Manette Louie, who did Land Ho, a bunch of other stuff, where she said a lot of the stuff described in the stories about the Revenant's production problems could very easily have been taken care of with very simple fixes in terms of how the set was organized. I mean, this is not just this one crazy guy. It's just that... Well, he has to have a strong producer protecting him and looking out for him. Right, shooting a big period drama outside on location is really difficult. If you're going to do that, then you have to plan it in certain ways. And I think the the thing that's unfortunate about this is that it, it creates the perception that Daring projects like this shouldn't happen because there's too much risk involved, and really, it's just that it, it was it's, people are being irresponsible in terms. On of some how level, they do I it. agree with you, but also the fact that the, you know this sounds a little bit like Michael Cimino on Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. Gate, you know, insisting that the underwear be you know a certain worsted of cotton, and huh. you know, I'm, I'm using that as an example. I'm not. It's not. You know, but it was on that level. It was on the level of having the exact period silverware and the right goblets and the right table napkins. You know, it was really bad and it was way over budget. I mean, the whole idea that he won't fix it in post or he won't do CG, you know, and he's going, they're really cold. They can really feel the cold up their ass, you know, for for verisimilitude. There, there's levels of, of humanity that need to be recognized here. But these stories are just exciting to follow in some ways because at least someone is keeping that side of the industry interesting. I mean, I agree. Now I want to see the movie. Trust me. From in the safety of my warm leather, you know, I was in one of those theaters this week watching um, Alex Gibney's Steve Jobs documentary. Have you seen that yet? I by actually any still haven't. I'll, I'll need to before I see Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs biography. Exactly, because because a lot of those moments that are in the Aaron Sorkin script are in this movie where he's making his presentations. It's really good. But I was in one of those fancy. Uh, you know the AMC Marina with the leather seats, and it's like it's like it's like uh, Alamo Draft House on steroids. You know, with with you know your own little tray and you know places for the cups and waiters hovering over you. You know, it was it was. It, I will look at this movie in the comfort comfort of my seat. I won't have to uh, endure what they what they went through. Speaking of brutal filmmaking conditions we should probably talk about Southpaw opening this week a movie that we have anticipated for some time because it 
was a maybe kind of sort of award season tantalizingly dangled at Cannes. Exactly. We thought we were going to see it. Then we didn't get to see it, but they showed it on a yacht to a bunch of famous people. Then somehow it premiered in China. (laughs) Pictures of it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, And social media, those pictures. Yeah. Couldn't be there. (laughs) I don't know exactly what that did for the movie, but um, the thing that that, uh, was notable about back then at Cannes was Harvey Weinstein's big declaration that this movie was invited to play in competition and that it could win Jake and Oscar and all this kind of stuff. And now that we've seen it, really my, doubtful. Yeah, I mean, my feeling about this movie is, first of all, it's it's not great. It does have a good center performance, but it's just so so formulaic all the way through, and it and so feels humorous. like Harvey was all over it, don't you think? It really, well, I mean, the, the, there are all kinds of different reasons why this movie doesn't work, starting with the fact that it's a five-year-old project originally supposed to star Eminem, and Eminem carries a certain symbolic weight. I mean, I would have Eminem, loved to have seen that movie. Yeah, it would have been 8 Mile 2 in some ways. And almost. it would have been more authentic. Absolutely. Or, because or Eminem something. is nothing if not authentic. He won't let that smarm come in right you know? even if that movie didn't work there would have been something to watch there here i feel like we're, we're left with something that's it's, it's a pretty soapy plot honestly and it's in a year when creed is coming out it's kind of Which a I'm bad sure. idea to I do know. a boxing movie so of course creed's gonna be better no question but but outside of that it's weird to see a movie that doesn't try to do something different with these material this material we've seen before because it's just so familiar cinematically i mean we have raging bull we have the rocky franchise so the guy who you know loses everything and has to come climb back up to the top and find some scrappy trainer in a, in a crappy gym to to bring him there is just so uninspired. I I have to say, though, that the scenes between Jake and uh, Forrest Whitaker were the best scenes in the movie, and I would have liked more. Of course, they did that in Million Dollar Baby also, but I would have liked more of that, um, that stuff in the gym. Um, he he's very good, Jake Gyllenhaal, and I actually, I went for the beginning. I understood what was going on with the relationship between him and the wife, sure, Rachel his McAdams. Wife is trying to get him to quit, but you know she's well, such no, a good. Well, no, but it isn't just that's not all that was going on. I mean, she grew up in the same Hell's Kitchen milieu with him, and she's a tough uh, orphanage survivor, and she's handling his life and taking care of everything, and and pulling him out of his craziness and and keeping him on track. And so he's in a way he's been enabled his whole life to use his anger uh, as the source of his power. And when she uh, unfortunately leaves the picture at a certain point, he has to manage without her, and it's really impossible for him to deal. And and he has a child and so forth. So I actually was okay for a while. But it's impossible it, for it, the movie to deal with that. It was, too. it was it was terrible. It was terrible after that. And 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 it really was melodramatic and incredibly manipulative and incredibly predictable. So that's a script problem. Absolutely. That they weren't. A, I actually think Antoine Fuqua is a good shooter. I think he's actually well, a capable director. It was the that, music too. Unfortunately, yeah. the late James Horner. Not uh, I don't best. want to badmouth him, but it, it was a manipulative score. Yeah, it was a manipulative score, and, and Fuqua is coming off of doing a, an action movie, and I feel like in some ways he's made another one because in the ring. Certainly there's a visceral intensity to these fights. You're watching guys pummel each other in the face, and 
the first shot in the ring of Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie is probably one of the best shots in the whole thing because you see him in slow-mo, bloodied, shouting, on the one hand looking very uncomfortable, on the other hand looking victorious, and I feel like that kind of paradox is at the essence of any movie that deals with boxing, and so his performance embodies that, but he's not given enough to say or do that would bring more sophistication to how we understand that. That's exactly right. I agree with that. And Actually, that, that leads into another movie I want to talk about that's also very much about sort of the ambiguous ways that we see people, which I know you're also a fan of, and that's Phoenix, which is opening this this Friday in limited release. And fewer people probably know about it than Southpaw, which is unfortunate because it's a heck of a lot better. It's a, a German director, Christian Petzold, who last directed a movie called Barbara, which was also really great. And, and they both uh, star Nina Haas, who's one of the great actresses. You may have seen her in Most Wanted Man. Wonderful German actress. Yeah, not a, not as prominent in that movie as, as she is in, in this this one, that's for sure, where she plays a, a woman who's a Holocaust survivor and undergoes uh, facial reconstructive surgery after, after her concentration camp experiences to the point where when she returns home, her husband doesn't recognize her and... <laughs> He gets her to pretend to be who she actually is. Shades of vertigo here. Exactly. That was what I found fascinating. There were, it was, it's, it's very much of a, of a kind of film noir, you know, with a lot Absolutely. of references to other uh, movies of the past. And yet there's a, there's a subtlety to it, and the textures of the movie are really involving because, on the one hand, that premise is patently absurd on the other it's the onus is on the actors to make us believe in it and they do i mean it's no (laughs) i I kept saying come on guy you know they're all in he's in denial basically well exactly i mean there's something almost representational in that you know in terms of the way that it deals with holocaust trauma let's say or the way that historical memory in a broader sense is, is something that we we never confront exactly the way we should we're always looking through it uh, through the prism of our own biases and through history and so forth and the movie does resolve this tension i think in one of the best closing scenes of the year i won't spoil but it doesn't do it in a way that's overt at all it's a very satisfying conclusion it does it's beautifully shot i think christian petzold is the top filmmaker in germany right now um and that's not um to say that I'm conversant with all the movies that are being made there, but very few of them are actually presenting at the festivals. Very few of them are actually being released in this country. So he's the one that I keep seeing, and I love his work. It's really intelligent, incredibly well-crafted, and uh, there are layers and layers of, of material to to get through and understand. I, I, I agree, and, and I think that this is one of the best distillations of his skill. He's made a lot of different kinds of movies. Barbara is, in some ways, a bigger movie in terms of the events that take place, the scope of it, but this one is is much more intimate in a way that I think opens it up to more people. And so well, it's hope- sexy in a way, too, yes. because you're dealing with... I mean, it's also fascinating because the woman is in love with her husband. And I love these actors. You know, he's a sexy big guy. He, he's sort of like a, a beefy, you know, Chris Pratt type. 
you know, and and she she adores him, and yet she wonders if he's guilty, if he's done something to set her up, if if he's responsible for her going to the concentration right. camps, right. and so there's a great deal of 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 doubt and and then he's making her up and turning her into you know his version of his wife that that he remembers and and yet she's not coming she's not the same she isn't the person that she was before and she's trying to walk like her and talk like her it's 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 wonderful and i also really appreciated the way in which it doesn't ever get to the point where it needs to overstate the the broader issues in play you never get that sort of reality check oh yeah there's a heap of bodies or somebody wearing a nazi outfit or something to that effect it it allows you to bring your intelligence to the table and i think it will be interesting to compare this one when people have more chance to see it to son of saul which is opening later this year another very unorthodox holocaust movie in which a lot of those details are sort of left to your imagination but at the same time, it is a Holocaust movie in a very explicit way. And I think that on some level we may be seeing a better kind of historical reckoning taking place with that particular moment in history. We're, we're past the, the Schindler's List paradigm in which everything needs to be sort of like the, you know, the overstated kind of sentimental way in which we understand this terrible thing that happened and it's being brought down to the level of, of human experience in, in a really... Uh, remarkable fashion um the other thing i wanted to bring up about this movie though is uh going back to something we were saying earlier about the difference between film and tv i know tv is getting more visual but i think that there's something that's cinematic about the close-up that we're seeing still in the movies more than in tv i went when i was in colombia on vacation last week to see minions in spanish (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, How was that? It was great. Um, uh, Good job with it. I had a, I had a lot of fun with it. I remember on our last recording, I, London, right? Yeah, I, I was gonna wait for a while and just kind of catch it on my Apple TV, but I was hanging out with some cousins I have in Medellin, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. And fortunately, you don't really need Spanish to understand that movie. But that was what was so great about it is just. Being in a room with a movie that you don't require subtitles for and following every beat of the narrative is, is what I think great cinema should do. And I'm, I don't, I'm not putting minions on a pedestal per, per, per se, but the ability to see it on a movie like that really opens you up to appreciating it when it's done in even more complex ways, as I think Phoenix does. You could almost watch Phoenix without uh, sound and get a lot of the at least emotional clarity of it well they're speaking spanish in the first place in minions (laughs) or a version of it so it must have been very easy for them babbling yeah i loved the language i wanted them to i wanted the universal to let me talk to someone about how they did that and they wouldn't let me do it well honestly i mean i appreciate a movie like that because on some level it's not overstating what it's trying to do and it's not pandering at the same time i mean it's pure slapstick for the most part there are some funny 60s jokes and there's a great Nixon gag in there things like that but for the most part it's like 
Laurel and Hardy or something like that. It really has, or, or Three Musketeers, I suppose, since there's three of them. But it. I was talking to Bill Desowitz, who's our um, sort of animation expert and below the line guy, and he always is, you know, tracking the animation race. And I was a big fan of of Despicable Me and and its sequel, and I I like this one very much too. But he said if the last Despicable Me didn't get nominated, there was no way that that Minions was going to get nominated. But I, I'm curious to see how that plays out in the end. Well, it's let, it's going to be Inside Out's to lose, of course. Well, on the other hand, we haven't seen the other Pixar movie that's coming out this year. That dinosaur thing. It won't beat Inside Out. Is that what the scuttlebutt's telling you these days? Oh, there's no way. I, I mean, I think Inside Out, because it's done so well and people love it, it seems like the one to beat. But Well, it's the one that has the patina of class and, and the extraordinary um, recreation of the brain and, and the image. You know, everybody's very aware of the degree of difficulty and originality involved. So, you know, an, another sort of sweet, childlike dinosaur tale survival tale i mean I've, i'm sure it's going to be really good and i'm sure it'll do really well but it's not i don't think it'll it'll be on the level of inside out i just remember that last year everyone said lego movie was a shoo-in and then didn't even get nominated that's a question of the filmmakers who obviously are laughing all the way to the bank as the hottest talents mm-hmm. in hollywood right now lord and and miller of are, are doing the, one of the uh, Star Wars spinoffs, and they have a factory of stuff going on with sequels to Lego Movie and all sorts of TV shows and everything else. But they are um, outsiders. They're not inside the animation community in the way that uh, you seem to need to be to uh, make it at the uh, academy level. Yeah, it's too bad that Bill Plimpton isn't either, because I'd be pulling for Cheaton to be an Oscar contender, too. Obviously, people can check that out. Anyway, With critical support, anything is possible. It's true, it's true. And he was nominated for a short film once, so who knows. What else in, in terms of Oscar season are we seeing right now? It seems like there's a lot of unknown variables, but other things are starting to shift around a little bit. Well, I, I, I did a roundup yesterday. Um, I was, I've been collecting all the movies that are uh, bound to be... To, the, the, basically, what's happening is that the... the um, Studios are announcing the release dates for uh, the fall films, and if it's undated, if something doesn't have a release date, you start going, hmm, is that going to come out? So, of course, Demolition has been pushed back to to 2016, Jean-Marc Ballet's uh, new film. But um, there is a list of all the movies that are going to be showing up um, on Thompson on Hollywood. (laughs) We'll see uh, when Toronto... uh, they just announced Miles Ahead, the Don Cheadle movie, which is interesting as closing night with um, he's directing, yeah. he's starring. I'm but curious now. That made it's me unusual because that was not actually on my radar. And why wasn't it on my radar? Because it doesn't have a distributor. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have a distributor, how the hell are they going to launch an Oscar campaign? And of course, I have queried the sales agent for the film, who will, uh, you know, over at UTA, and I have not heard back. You know, when are, my my sources tell me that they're going to be showing the movie now. 
and getting a distributor before it shows at the New York oh, Film Festival. Oh, it would Festival. be stupid for them not to have sold that movie by the time it plays there. Absolutely, there it would be too late. And it looks like a it looks like a really strong contender based on uh, everything Kent Jones has to say about it. You never really know with that stuff. It could be that, or it could be just that there's something really profoundly moving about the material that makes it work well enough for that environment. I mean, certainly it's it's very New York. And it's it's got to got to have a terrific soundtrack, otherwise it's completely failed at what it's supposed to do. So there there are aspects of it that should be built into the appeal. But again, I mean, it's it's anyone's guess. We'll have to wait and see when they decide to show it to us. But it's always yeah. nice to have stuff like that just kind of you know surface in the conversation when uh, we weren't really talking about it before. I know, I know. And uh, so we've got, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, we've got Baltazar, Baltazar Karmaker's movie, Everest, is going to be the opener in Venice. So that's off the table. Right. And uh, the Suffragette movie will be playing other festivals, even though it's opening London, which is a late-breaking October uh, festival. And then, um, you know, we'll see what the gala centerpiece is for for New York, but uh, uh, you know we're we're going to see all the festival stuff that we've already encountered. But what are the new ones? You know, there's you know there's Black Mass with Johnny Depp and heavy makeup, or mm-hmm. Bridge of Spies from Spielberg, or Danish Girl with Eddie Redmayne in a dress. Right. None yeah. of that stuff really excites me. You know, it's just I. What about Legend? What about the Cray Twins, played by Tom Hardy? Well, there's some possibilities there. I mean, Tom Hardy continues to be an appealing possibility as just somebody who could really break out in a different kind of way. I mean, his his, uh, Mad Max performance, I thought, was a great sort of transitional moment in some ways, and and I'm looking forward to seeing him do more things that are, are different, so... I, I'm curious. He's such about a great it. actor, such an amazing actor. So, I'll watch anything he does. Then there's Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, sure. <coughs> which, which we still haven't seen, or Jodie Foster's Money Monster. That one is undated, so I don't know when that's going to show up. That's with George Clooney and Julia Roberts and Jack O'Connell. In the meantime, um, there's still other movies worth talking about that are yet to come out just in the next few weeks. Everything from the next Mission Impossible movie to Ricky and the Flash. So all kinds of possibilities in play for not necessarily award season movies, but additional films that may crop up in a broader sense and, and complicate the way that we're talking about movies this year. I mean, Mission Impossible could end up doing well. It's hard to say. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it soon. But uh, I'm curious to see how the rest of this summer plays out. There's still a lot of unknown variables in that respect, even if Jurassic World is still the top grocer and so forth. And we've still got many months to go before Star Wars, so... Lots of different stuff to to consider on that scale that's not even necessarily a part of the Oscar conversation. Unless you think, based on your Comic-Con experience, that Star Wars is in the Oscar conversation. I doubt it. I doubt it. But the one that I'm wondering, I think Crimson Peak could be in the Oscar conversation based on what I've seen. And I know it's a horror movie. I know there's rivers of blood, but that was true of The Shining as well. I mean, sometimes that was true of... of, 
Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs. I mean, it is it is possible to, you know, Pan's Labyrinth was was an Oscar winner, you know, on in set not just in being nominated by for the foreign side, but it was it it, it got some other Oscars like cinematography and stuff. So this movie looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So it it could very well pick up some things, and it's got a great cast. We'll see. Well, I'm heading over to Montreal this weekend for Fantasia Fest, and I'm sure that that crowd over there at that huge genre festival will be anticipating Crimson Peak as well, so I may dig around for a little bit. A lot of those folks talk to Guillermo del Toro since he's really of that scene, and sometimes you can hear from people more about the way these things come together. I'd love to see Guillermo del Toro back on that sort of in the serious conversation, the way that people talk about movies during Oscar season, because he's one of the rare artists who can cross over in that way. Well, he's kept most of his adult stuff on the adult. uh, Well, we talked about this. He's, I, 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 I just think that this could be the great, you know, uniting of his different sensibilities in an adult film. So we shall see. We'll just put a pin in that one for now and keep anticipating it. And next week we'll have a whole lot more to talk about because we'll have so many new movies in the Toronto lineup to, to go through. And after that, we'll be in Locarno. So. Bye-bye. Good morning, here's